All right, this is How We Got Our Bible. We're in week three of How We Got Our Bible. And uh, let me just review a little bit from last week uh, where we, what we covered. We were talking about the languages of the Bible last week. We said the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic which are Semitic languages, languages that were spoken at the time of the writing of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was written over a long period of time, from about 1500, 1400 B.C. up to about 400 B.C., covering, you know, a thousand years. So Hebrew and Aramaic were spoken. The New Testament was written over a shorter period of time, say maybe about A.D. 50 to A.D. 100, something like that, 90. And Greek was the language that was spoken, commonly called Koine Greek or common everyday Greek. We talked about God's word written. Of course, God's word written in the Old Testament was Hebrew. We talked about the Hebrew alphabet and noticed that the Hebrew alphabet is an alphabet that contains only consonants. And languages like Hebrew, Semitic languages, uh, the alphabets are just consonantal. They don't have vowels in the alphabet. The vowels were added later on, as we see. The Greek alphabet, remember all these alphabets are related to one another. They come from the Phoenician alphabet, and so the Hebrew alphabet comes from that, and the Greek alphabet comes from that, and the Roman alphabet is developed from the Greek alphabet. The Greek alphabet, Greek is an Indo-European language like English is, and so it has vowels in the alphabet. We talked about writing materials. Papyrus was... One of the writing materials that we have manuscripts on, papyrus, remember, is a plant that grows like in Egypt, and you make sort of paper or papyrus. Here's a papyrus of uh, a copy of the New Testament. Uh, this is the starting here, the book of Hebrews. Parchment, that's animal skins. So another writing material that was used was parchment. You can make it out of sheep skin or goat skin or calf skin. Various kinds of skin can be used. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are mainly animal skins. The New Testament is part is some papyrus, mostly parchment, as we'll see. The book forms. The New the Old Testament was written on scrolls. Of course, the Ten Commandments on stones first, remember, but but uh, on scrolls and the New Testament, we believe, was probably written on scrolls. Yes. The scrolls, what material were the scrolls? Scrolls could be made out of papyrus or parchment, either one. Parchment scrolls or papyrus scrolls. So we think scrolls because the codex form of the book, what we call a book today, where it's bound on the end, this didn't come into existence as far as we know until about AD 100. So the, 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 the Christians picked this form of the book up right away. And manuscripts, most Christian manuscripts, are of the codex form. We talked about the text of the Old Testament before the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, and they have biblical books going back to 250 B.C. But before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had uh, Jews who copied carefully the Old Testament text over time, and they produced codices like the Aleppo Codex, 925, and the Leningrad Codex, 1008, 
Most of the Hebrew Bibles we have today, our NIV is based mostly on that Leningrad Codex right there. The Dead Sea Scrolls come along, 1947. There's the Isaiah Scroll. They confirmed that those scrolls that we had been using were very accurate scrolls, that the Jews had accurately copied things. The Jews had scribes, and they're usually... We usually divide the scribal periods up into different times. We talk about the pre-Masoretic period because some of the scribes who copied the Old Testament, Jewish scribes, were called the Masoretes from about A.D. 500 on. And they invented the system of vowel points and so forth. Our present texts are called Masoretic texts. But before the uh, before pre-Masoretic times, uh, Jews created a consonantal text. So there is the Genesis 1-1 with consonants. Now I can say Bereshit bara, but there's no vowels there, you know, to pronounce that. But remember, you can read Hebrew. People can read Hebrew. I started to show you a picture of an Israeli newspaper. If you look at an Israeli newspaper, there are no vowels. It's just consonants. They can figure out what the vowels are without the consonants there. So before the Masoretes, Jews had created what we call the standardized consonantal text. This is the text. This is the inspired text. As far as we know, Moses would have written in a consonantal text with no vowels, as far as we know, or anything. Then the Masoretes come along 500, and by 800, they create this system of vowel points. They don't, they don't create new letters for vowels. They just create these little dots and these little T's. These are, these are vowels. There's an O above there. And there's an A, another A, and so forth. So they create these vowel points, we call them, the Masoretes. Then in the post-Masoretic period, we get into the age of printing. Remember, the printing press is about 1450, and so uh, we eventually get printed Bibles. The most important of these is called the Second Rabbinic Bible, 1520 to 2425. That's based on that Leningrad Codex. And that, that Bible that Bible is basically the Bible that's been used for 500 years to translate the Old Testament. So our NIV is really based upon that. This is called the Biblical Hebraicus Dugartensia, which is really just a form of that rabbinic Bible, just an updating of it. And so we use that same Hebrew text for we've been using it for 500 years. There's been no particular change. We want to talk about the Septuagint. I knew you were going to be excited about this. <laughs> First of all, it's even hard to know how to pronounce this word. I just said Septuagint, but I've changed my pronunciation over the years. I started with Septuagint, and then in my studies, people would say Septuagint, and then I switched to this, Septuagint. You know, there's, if you look in the dictionary, there's about five different pronunciations. So I've kind of gone back to Septuagint because it's a little easier for people to say, but there's no rec no recognized one pronunciation. What is the Septuagint? You can see on your notes there that besides the manuscripts of the Old Testament itself in Hebrew, we have manuscripts of the Old Testament in other languages. The Old Testament was translated into other languages. And the first language it was translated into was Greek. And that is this Septuagint. It's abbreviated LXX. Here is a scroll. Here's a uh, 
papyrus scroll of a portion of, of the Septuagint from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls contain Hebrew manuscripts mostly, but they also have some Greek scrolls in there too. And here's one of Leviticus around the year A.D. 200. Uh, so um, here is Septuagint. Remember this. Remember your Roman numerals. Uh, L equals 50. X equals 10. X equals 10. So, so in scholarly literature, they just write LXX. They just say that's 70. Because uh, according to tradition here, uh, this work, one tradition says that this translation of the Old Testament into Greek was done by 70 scholars or 70 translators. Uh, Septuagint itself, Septuaginta means 70. So it's the work of 70. So that's the tradition. It was begun in Egypt around 250 B.C., so in between the Testaments, remember Malachi around 400 B.C. and uh, then the New Testament around 50. So in between, the, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek around 250, com- completed about 100. Now why would the Jews translate the Bible into Greek? Because there were Greeks living in all parts of the world who didn't know Hebrew anymore. In other words... They lived in this thing called the diaspora, the dispersion. Greeks, Jews lived in Rome. They lived all over the Roman Empire. Remember Paul on his missionary journeys would go to places. He had to find Jews living there. Well, these Jews who were born outside, they tended to use the language that was common there. So Jews born in America don't generally learn Hebrew as their first language. They learn English as their first language. And so uh, Jews who were born in Corinth tended to learn Greek as their first language because Greek was the common language of the time period. Remember we talked about Alexander the Great conquering that whole area. So in the New Testament time, the most common language, even though we're in the Roman Empire, the most commonly spoken language was Greek. So Jews were interested in translating their Bible into Greek so people could understand it who lived outside of Palestine. Um, So The Septuagint is very important then because it becomes the Bible of early Christianity. So we've got the original Hebrew, Old Testament, translated into Greek, the Septuagint, around 250 B.C. That produces a Greek Old Testament. The New Testament is in Greek, so early Christians around the year A.D. 100, say Christians in Rome. They read their Bible in Greek. They read a Greek Old Testament and they read a Greek New Testament because, you know, Christians, non-Jewish, Gentiles, wouldn't know Hebrew. They wouldn't be able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew. They wouldn't know Greek. So this is a very important translation, the Septuagint, because it becomes the way that people, Gentiles, like you and I, would have read the Old Testament in the New Testament period. Uh, It became extremely popular. It became the King James Version of its day, universally used. And I mention here some other reasons. Uh, It's the translation that's commonly quoted in the New Testament. Think about that. 
So New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, don't they? They often say, the Old Testament says, or the Bible says, or the prophet says. The translation they quote most often is the Septuagint. There's a mixture there. Some writers tend to quote more like the Hebrew text. Now, when you say, is that different Bibles? No, but there's some slight differences. You know, just like you pick up an NIV and you pick up an ESV, you know, you can get some slight differences. I even noticed the difference today in our pastor's sermon. He's not listening, so I can jump on him here a little bit. But <laughs> when he was when he was when he was preaching this morning, he 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 uh, actually quoted in part of his message from the NIV 1984. It was in there rather than the 2011, because he had this phrase in Romans 3. It talks about faith in His blood. That faith in his blood phrase is not found in 2011. That's found in 84. They've changed that. Faith, and then uh, faith through the shedding of his blood. When you, when you actually read it, you notice two different things. So you can get differences, slight differences in translation, even between the 84 20, uh, NIV and the 2011. You can get differences. So there are differences, some differences, between the Septuagint and between the Hebrew Bible. And you can tell those sometimes when writers, like the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews almost always quotes the Septuagint. Paul is kind of a mixed bag on that kind of thing. So, But it's the one that's most quoted in the New Testament. As I say, it's the basis for many theological terms in the New Testament, like the Greek word for sin. So here's writers in the New Testament. They're writing new truth from God. They're talking about all these great subjects. They don't have to invent new terms to describe these things. They don't have to invent these terms because some of these terms are available. These theological terms are available. You know, it's a hard thing. <clears throat> if you go to some place where the people don't have a written language, right, and you try to translate their written language into, you try to translate the Bible into their written language, what are you going to do with these theological terms like justification and propitiation? You, you may have to invent some terms or find a term that's similar or something, you know. Well, the writers who, uh, the New Testament writers had an advantage because the Old Testament was already translated into Greek. So they had a lot of those theological terms, like, for instance, the term sin. You've heard this illustration many times. A pastor or somebody will try to illustrate what does it mean to sin. You know, you talk about this word hamartia for sin, amartia. And they will say, well, it's like shooting an, uh, an arrow at a target, you know, and it's called missing the mark. You shoot an arrow, you've heard that illustration, and, and when you don't hit the bullseye, you miss the mark, that's what sin is. Well, that's what sin meant mainly in secular Greek. In the, in the secular Greek, not biblical Greek, in the secular Greek, the word hamartia didn't really have much of a moral connotation. It didn't really mean something wrong. You haven't committed a sin if you don't hit the bullseye. That's not a sin. You just miss the bullseye. There, there's no sinful moral problem with not hitting the bullseye. And so in secular Greek, if you didn't hit the bullseye, that's a hamartia. But the Old Testament picks up that term for missing the mark and uses it in a moral sense. You've missed God's mark. You miss God's standard of righteousness, and therefore you have sin. 
So that's what I mean by this was a very important translation because it provided a theological vocabulary readily available for the New Testament writers. All right, let's talk about the New Testament manuscripts, the classification of manuscripts. There's about 5,838 New Testament manuscripts known to exist today. Now, most of these are fragmentary. They're not full copies of the entire New Testament. So about 5,838. That number changes over time a little bit because they find another fragment, another another thing here, find a, a place here. It's not that they found any big copies uh, of the whole Book of Romans or something in the last 20, 30 years, but they find fragmentary pieces, and so this number kind of goes up. <coughs> These are divided into different categories. Papyri, written on papyrus, some called uncials, minuscules, lectionaries. Let's just take a look at each one of those. So here is uh, papyri. Papyri are written on papyrus, and they're written in something called uncial letters. Uncial letters are these capital letters here. See how they are? They're capital kind of letters. This is how the manuscripts look. They don't have any punctuation marks. They don't even have any spaces between the letters. It's hard to understand how people could read this stuff without any spaces between the words. I've just This is what it would look like in a Greek New Testament today. So here's one word, because, and here's another word. But they just run it, run it right together, no spacing in between. So papyri are written in these uncial capital letters. These are connected together. There's no division. As I say here, these run from the 2nd to the 8th century. Most come from the 3rd or 4th. And so these are the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament we have, these papyri, these 128 papyri. Here's the oldest one known to exist, P52. It's just a fragment. It's dated various dates, 100 to 125, and you'll see nobody knows exactly. So it was within like 10 years of the death of John. Yes, yes. 10 years of the death of John. <clears throat> In recent years, the last two or three years, a New Testament scholar by the name of Dan Wallace has leaked some information that, that they may have found a copy of the gospel, a fragment of the gospel of Mark from the first century. A fragment of the gospel of Mark from the first century. Now, this has been leaked and talked about for a couple years, and promises were made. Uh, he said when he talked about this that they were going to come out with this in publication last year, the year before. We don't know anything. It's, it's hard to know whether this is tr how true this is or not, but uh, there's, these, there's, there's this speculation out there. Uh, it's exciting, but we don't know whether it's going to be true. The reason they have found this kind of thing is because when most of these things come from Egypt, it's very dry and the pre preserves papyrus there, but when the Egyptians buried their dead, they would put these masks on their face, faces, to cover their faces. If you were a pharaoh, you had a gold one. That's why they want to rob the tombs of the pharaohs. They want to get those gold masks and gold. They were encased in gold. But if you were just an average person, you had one made out of paper, like paper mache. They just took old scraps of papyrus, old scraps, and kind of glued them together and formed a kind of a mass to go over your head. 
and well, they've had these masks for a long time, but in recent years they found methods to separate the papyrus from some of these. And in separating this papyrus, they found some fragments. They found fragments of different documents, and some of these are New Testament documents here. The guy who has all these things is the Hobby Lobby guy. Do you know Hobby Lobby? All the ladies know Hobby Lobby. Well, Mr. Green, who owns Hobby Lobby, he's a Christian, and he's making a collection of biblical documents, fragments of uh, Bibles and so forth. He's building a museum in Washington, D.C., just off the mall there. It's going to be a big Bible museum with all kinds of Bibles and manuscripts and so forth. But he's the one who is kind of sponsoring all this research and they're finding these kinds of things. So we'll have to wait and see whether there is something older than P-52. Where's P-52 I don't remember. P-52 is in, in, in England in the... Uh, I can't think of the name of the library there. Uh, what's that? Was it the British Museum? No, it's not the British Museum. It's the... Uh, Oh, I can't think of the name of the library. There's a library there, but it's where it's uh, it's located. Um, actually, you know, when you say the British Museum, most of the manuscripts are not in the British Museum. They're called the British Library. The British have actually two buildings there. One's called the museum, and one's called the library, and they kind of guard their stuff separately. Yes? Is there any speculation as to why they would wrap up dead men's face in scripture? Well, it wasn't. They were just they just used that as as paper. It wasn't. They were, it was all kinds of documents, just scraps. So they're just making paper mache. Did you ever make paper mache? Well, have you ever made paper? How do you make paper mache? Don't you use flour and water? Flour water. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, they made it out of paper and just kind of glued it. So it's you don't really it's 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 all covered over. You don't really see anything. They just found fragments uh, to do to use it with. So here's P46. Um, this is from the University of Michigan. We looked at this before, about AD 200. Here's what it looks like. I'm just kind of showing you how you can see those large capital letters there. This is what it would look like today. This is actually an abbreviation up here saying a thousand lines. The people, the person who got paid for this, got paid by the number of lines he wrote. And so this is saying, I, this is a thousand lines I've done, so this, I, you know, you get so much money for that. This is a correction here. See the margin here? Someone has come along later and added a word here, right here, a correction. Here's P66, around 200. You can see how it's all capital letters like, it's run together. You can see how it is right here. It's very, it's very hard to read. I should make Sheila read this here, but you can. I can. I can read a little bit of it. It's even hard. This says in. This is the beginning of the Gospel of John, but it's hard to read because all the letters are run together. This is N R K. That's in the beginning. N R K. Uh, Ain was the halagos, the word. So you can, it can be read, but it's very difficult to read because it's all run together there. Is it to conserve writing material? Yes, yeah, conserve writing material. Is that right? They ran it all together just to save paper. So okay. save, save space. 
So we had the papyri. There's 128 manuscripts written on papyrus that we know about today. There are these uncial manuscripts. These are capital letter manuscripts. Here's some important uncials here that I mentioned here. They're written on parchment from the 3rd century to the 10th century. 3rd to the 10th. So they are not quite as old. Here's some of the oldest ones, like Sinaiticus here. I'll show you a picture of Vaticanus here. So here's uh, Sinaiticus, AD 350. Here's what it looks like in four columns. See, there's the spaces between the columns, but there's no spaces. So a word may just continue right on to the next line. They don't just stop and it just continues on. So here's Vaticanus, eighty three twenty five. This is Romans. I can read a little of this here. So here's a capital P. P-A-U-L-O-S. Paulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. Doulos. Remember anybody heard what doulos means? Servant, doulos, remember servant. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, this is actually abbreviated. There's lines over there. This is abbreviation for Christ. This is abbreviation for Jesus here. So you see it's all run together. There's no spaces in between. Seems difficult to read, doesn't it? So we've got these uncial papyrus, uncial manuscripts. We've got minuscules, 2,926. These are manuscripts, as I say here, written on parchment beginning in the 9th century, going to the 12th century. They, they're, they're written in a cursive style rather than that sort of capital letter style that we saw here, sort of a capital block letter. They're developed a cursive style. Uh, it's much easier to write. Here's manuscript 2813. This is very difficult to read because there's all kinds of what's called ligatures and abbreviations quite difficult to read. Then there's these uh, lectionaries, 2,462. As I say, these are, these are copies of Scripture not in ordinary sequence, but in sections arranged for reading in church services. So these were manuscripts that were copied. So you'd copy a section of the Gospels and a section of the Epistles often. So in church, somebody would get up and read a section of the Gospels and then read a section from the epistles. And that's how these were basically constructed for reading in churches. Uh, I say also here, besides these uh, actual manuscripts, we've got thousands of quotations in Christian writings, in the writings of the early Christians. You could probably reconstruct the Bible, the New Testament, just from those particular writings. What about the reliability of the New Testament? How reliable is it? Well, it's pretty reliable when you think about comparison to other ancient documents. That is, there's a lot more manuscripts of the New Testament than there are of other ancient documents that most people take for granted that we're reading. When I was, you know, years ago, if you were in high school and you took Latin, the second year, it was standard to read this right here, Caesar's Commentary on the Gallic Wars. It was standard, that was standard practice to read about Caesar's conquest of Gaul and so forth. And we read that. School children read that for hundreds of years. And uh, it, there was only 10 copies. But we read it as though this is what Caesar wrote, you know. It's only 10 copies compared to thousands of the New Testament. 
So we have a much better preserved, much more reliable text than we have of other ancient documents which are not preserved as well. Well, that Septuagint was fun, but let's talk about the Vulgate. That's where we really get to the fun, because I knew you were just couldn't wait for that particular one. Besides the Bible, the Old Testament being translated into Greek, the Bible was translated into Latin. Because I've been harping, I've been harping for weeks here about how that the Greek was the universal language and everybody spoke Greek. Yeah. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, he wrote it in Greek. But that eventually changed about along this timeline. The official language of the Roman Empire was Latin. And even though in Paul's time, most people in the Roman Empire spoke Greek, more people spoke Greek than Latin, in Western Europe, that began to change. So around the year 200, Latin begins to predominate. I think it's going to go. Doesn't want to go, huh? There you go. I'm right as best I can. <laughs> Stuck. Okay, thanks. This is a this is a this is a, a new version. This is a new version of PowerPoint. I was. It does not want to let me go. You're all booted, Morgan. You're going to boot it? <laughs> Reboot it. I made it by hand. <laughs> so there is what happened beginning around 200 and thereafter. Latin begins to predominate in Western Europe and North Africa. And so the people there mainly spoke Latin then. Latin began to dominate. So there was a need for a translation of the Bible into Latin. That translation is commonly called, or the most important one, is called the Vulgate. Vulgate is a term that means vulgar or common. We think of the word vulgar, but it just meant common every day. So the Vulgate uh, was produced by a man by the name of Jerome. And uh, I guess I'm going to have to... It's going to make me do it by hand here for some reason. Uh, remember we talked about the Apocrypha um, before? We said the Apocrypha were those books that the Jews wrote between the intertestamental period. Remember, between uh, 400 and the time of the New Testament, Jews had written a lot of literature. We called them the apocryphal books. Well, these books were highly valued as religious literature. The Jews did not think they were inspired. They didn't think they should be part of the Old Testament or anything like that. But as time went along, Christians began to uh, uh, think that they were quite valuable. 
And so uh, when the Old Testament, when the Old and New Testament were translated into Latin by this biblical scholar by the name of Jerome, I mentioned here, uh, around 405, the religious officials warned him to include some of these apocryphal books because they were religious literature, valuable literature. I, I try to, you know, I try to look at this like uh, a study Bible today. We have a Bible, but it has a lot of other stuff in it. You know, an, an NIV study Bible, a MacArthur study Bible. There's all kinds of study Bibles. They have a lot of other things in there besides just the books of the Bible. Well, church authorities thought that these books had religious value. They taught, they taught moral lessons, good moral lessons, and so forth. And so they wanted Jerome to include these when he was translating. He didn't want to. He, he, he was opposed to this idea, but he did translate a few of these. Over time, over the centuries, now the Vulgate becomes the Bible of the church for the next thousand years. And over time, these books uh, get into the Vulgate. So let's look at the Bible again. Remember we had the Septuagint. This was the Bible of early Christians. But what happened? In Western Europe, those people no longer spoke Greek anymore. Latin became dominant if you were an educated person. Now, during the Middle Ages and all that, of course, most people were illiterate. But those who were educated spoke and wrote in Latin. And so the Latin Vulgate by Jerome around AD 400 became the Bible of Western Europe for the next uh, thousand years. Here's a Latin manuscript of the Vulgate, 1273. So this is a handwritten manuscript of the Vulgate. Um, The printing press comes along, and the first book on the printing press is of Gutenberg's Bible is the Vulgate. The first book that, that came off the printing press was a Bible, but it was a Latin Bible because that was the Bible of educated people. That was the language you learned. If you went to school and studied, you learned Latin, and so... This, was, this Bible had a, a profound effect, a tremendous effect upon uh, English translations to come, as we'll see, upon the King James and other translations. So as I mentioned here, it became the Bible of the church the next thousand years, influenced modern translations even up to the 19th century. The chapter divisions in our modern Bibles were invented by Stephen Langdon for the Vulgate. So the chapter divisions first appear in the Vulgate, uh, the first printed Bible here is a Vulgate. So, these Christians, during the Middle Ages, right up until the 1500s, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible. I'm just wondering why this thing will not do a disturbing thing. Um, Let's talk about the transmission of the New Testament text. Before A.D. 325, I mentioned this date because, remember, Christianity was an outlawed religion. 
But then Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, if you remember your church history a little bit, the Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity and made Christianity a legal religion. It was illegal before then. So during this period, uh, Christians had to copy their manuscripts outside of mostly professional means. They, they, they couldn't uh, use the scriptorums and so forth during that particular time. From 325 to 1516, of course, Christianity is a legal religion. As I mentioned here uh, on your notes, 325 to 15th, after the year 300, Greek was only spoken in the eastern part of the empire, as we talked about before. So Greek manuscripts were only copied in the east. In the west, nobody cared about Greek manuscripts. Nobody spoke Greek over there. So in this period, 325 to 1516, the knowledge of Greek was pretty much lost there. And the Bible, if you read the Bible, you read it in Latin, the Latin Vulgate. And it became the, uh, the inspired version. In fact, the Council of Trent, 1546, said, they in fact said the, the, the Latin Vulgate pretty much is the inspired version. They didn't look back to the Greek any longer. Um, so most of the manuscripts that were copied were copied during uh, copied here in Greece, and this produced uh, what I call here what's called the Byzantine text type. You don't have to worry too much about that, but we'll talk later about text types because it'll come up when we have this controversy about versions in the King James. It's possible when you look at Greek manuscripts, they're all. They're all the New Testament. They're all the same thing, but they're slight variations. And these variations, among them, can sometimes be classified into categories. That is, some manuscripts fit into certain categories, or text types, as people call them. And the earliest categorization are called Alexandrian, some call Western. This developed into what's called the Byzantine text type in the 4th century, and this is what was mainly copied in that part of the eastern part of the empire. Now, so when we talk about the controversy later on, we're talking about going back to the earlier text type, if at all possible. So I'll talk about that a little later on, but I'll just mention it here for now. Uh, let's talk about 1516 to 1633, the establishment of the Texas Receptus. So with the invention of printing in the 15th century, around 1450, the copying of manuscripts comes to an end, and now we're able to print copies of the Bible. The first printed, I mentioned here, number two here, first printed Greek New Testament was by Cardinal Francisco Zimenez de Cisneros of Spain. So... Here he is, and he produced what's called the Complutensian Polyglot. Polyglot means, poly means many, and glot, you know, like glottalstop or glottis, you know, many languages, glossa language. So polyglot is many languages. It's a multiple language Bible. Complutensian is just the Latin name for the place in Spain where this was done. It's near Madrid. So he produced what's called the Complutensian Polyglot. 
the New Testament was translated in 1514. So you notice I have an italics there. It was technically the first Greek New Testament printed. The first Greek New Testament printed was in 1514. But in Spain, he couldn't get it published right away because you had to get the Pope's approval. He didn't get the 1520. Now, it's actually a multiple version Bible here. It's got the Hebrew over here. It's got the Greek over here. And the Latin is in the center. So this is the Old Testament. So you've got the you've got the Hebrew here, Hebrew Old Testament. You've got the Greek over here. What's that called? The Greek translation of the Old Testament? Septuagint, remember? And you've got the Latin here. This is the Vulgate edition here. So that's what he produced, a multi-language Bible here. Now, the, the Latin is in the middle because that's the favored language. That's the inspired language. These others are there just for reference. These people are heretics. The cardinal, the cardinal. These people, these are Jews, they're heretics. These Greeks, they're heretics too. Because by this time, the Roman Catholic Church had broken off from the Greek church, the Greek church, the Greek Orthodox church. They're still broken today. And so the Greeks were heretics, and the Jews were heretics. So they describe this as like Jesus hanging between the two thieves. So the Latin is what you trust. It's the inspired translation. Main concern was that Latin translation in the center. Here's Erasmus, 1516. Notice in italics, the first published. So the first, actually, one that people could read and buy, published. The first Greek New Testament was by Erasmus, 1516. He was a Roman Catholic priest named Desiderius Erasmus. He produced a Greek-English New Testament. Now, in my research, I was able to discover... You've seen this before? In my, in my research, I was able to discover a painting that no one has really... Well, I, somehow Sheila saw this, so she must have discovered it too, somehow. But it shows how Erasmus was able to do his work here. I don't show this to everybody. So. There it is. He was, he, was able to, he was able to do all his work because he had this. He produced the first Greek New Testament. We call it a Greek New Testament, but it was a Latin Greek New Testament, 1516. You can see it's got the, the Latin and the Greek, first edition, 1516. Greek and then, then Latin here. Now, Erasmus was not primarily trying to produce a Greek New Testament so people could read their Greek New Testament. At that time in Western Europe, most people couldn't read Greek. They read Latin. Any scholar read Latin. 
He was actually, this Latin here is kind of a revision of the Vulgate. Erasmus looked at the Vulgate, which had been produced in 400 by Jerome, been used for a thousand years, and he said, corruptions have come into the Vulgate, and I want to correct those. I want to purify. So he produced his own Latin revision here of the Vulgate, and he put the Greek there so people could say, this is where it came from. Here's the original source. But, of course, people used it because they wanted to see the original Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, so it, it sold very well for that, for, for that uh, reason. Erasmus uh, did this very quickly, very hurriedly. Uh, he didn't actually write out a Greek New Testament. He just sent a manuscript to the printers and said, print this. But he made corrections in the margin where he thought you know things could be changed. He only had seven manuscripts to work from. He didn't have all the manuscripts we have today. So he had seven manuscripts of the New Testament, not all the manuscripts we have today. So his text is not as accurate as a Greek text we would have today, since we have access to all these other manuscripts. He had very few. And he didn't have seven of the entire New Testament. He just had seven of part of the New Testament. For instance, he made a mistake in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. The King James says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. But if you have an NIV, a New American Standard, an ESV, or if you look at the margin of a King James, in the margin it will often say the word throne. And I saw the dead and great standing before the throne. Now, there's not much difference in meaning that. If they're standing before the throne, they're standing before the throne of God, obviously. But the problem here is that in the way Greek was written back then, um, throne and God look very much similar. These are abbreviations. This is theos, this is thronos. The only difference is that line across the top to indicate that that's Theos and not Thronos. So it's very easy to mix those up when you're copying manuscripts. And remember we said Erasmus had seven manuscripts, but not of the entire Bible. He only had one of Revelation. The other 304 have the word throne there. So all the other manuscripts of Revelation have the word throne. One manuscript has the word God. Erasmus just happened to get that one. You see what happened? He just happened to get that one. That's why your modern Bible is going to go with those 304 that have the word throne there, like, say, in the NIV. So there's his third edition, which became quite popular and was used as a standard and then others came and picked up on this. We better stop because I've gone over here. We'll come back to this next time, kind of review and pick up here. Thank you very much.